Welcome back to episode 8 of Sidewalk Skyline Podcast. Today we are starting a series that I call Gangland Preachers. In this and upcoming episodes, we're going to hear from some people that have first-hand experience when it comes to gangs and their effect on the community. Most of our discussions will focus on the Toronto area. Today's guest is Olu Jegade. He pastors Christian Center Church in Toronto. Hey, do you get those amber alerts on your smartphone? More than once, I've been awakened in the night by that disturbing ringtone to report that a minor has been abducted or has gone missing. I remember just in March of this year getting the alert about a 14-year-old boy that was missing from the Jane and Finch neighborhood of Toronto. He had been abducted over a $4 million drug debt that his stepbrother had owed from last summer. Well, that young man was a, an example of someone that Christian Center Church and Pastor Olu Jegade know and care about. He was recovered by the police and returned home. These stories are all too real and personal for people like Pastor Olu. In 2007, Jordan Manners was killed by gun violence inside his high school. This was another young man that Olu had mentored over the years. Like Nehemiah of old, God calls some people into urban centers to build community and faith in places that have lost both. This session was a presentation that Olu gave at Our City Toronto 2019. Listen now as he shares about his work as a gangland preacher. All right, so let's uh, look at Nehemiah. We just read a couple of verses and then I'll share our story. So. Uh, Nehemiah had a problem and, and, and God began to reveal the problem to him. And as we look at chapter 1, Nehemiah 1 verse 1, The words of Nehemiah son of Hakaliah in the month of Kislev in the 20th year while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. And they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. And so here's the problem. The problem is the, the walls of Jerusalem had been broken down. Earlier, Ezra had led a cohort down to uh, Jerusalem and began to rebuild the city uh, under the decree of Cyrus. And things were okay, but after a while... The enemies came in and they discouraged the work of the Lord. And so now, um, you know, people have scattered. Uh, there's no more vision to continue the work of the Lord. So there's a, there's a problem in the city of Jerusalem. And this uh, gets to the ears of Nehemiah and he has a response. But, as I, but really we want to think about what is the problem that we are called to solve in our city? What is the problem that we are called in, to, to solve in, in our community? I believe that. Um, there is always a problem, particularly in the city. There is a problem wherever God calls his people, wherever he plants a church, wherever he calls you to go, there's a problem that you're called to solve. And in our community, in Jane and Finch, um, 
We, um, we I, I believe it's a beautiful community. I'm, I'm a bit biased. Uh, that's why we have these shirts called I Love Jane and Finch. And, um, and it's, it's a brand that's caught on. We have businesses, well, at least two businesses now that have ordered our branding and they're like, and they're in the community, right? They're like, we want to hear good things about the community. It's a beautiful community. Um, so this is Jane Finch, uh, you know, probably a hundred years ago. Um, <laughs> like much of Toronto, uh, just a farming community. And, and, uh, and then in the 60s, uh, they decided that they were going to uh, sell uh, quite a bit of the land to developers because it was a huge immigration boom in the 60s. And so this is Jane and Finch now. So um, it's very multicultural. Uh, it's very dense. <laughs> About 55,000 people live uh, in just a couple of square miles. Um, and you see just a, in fact, they call it the Jane and Finch corridor because you see like a whole like corridor all along Jane Street for, uh, a, you know, like a mile. You just see a corridor of apartments side by side all the way down. So, um, but uh, if you want to go on missions, you don't have to travel too far. Just come to our community because there's lots of diversity, lots of ethnic min minorities um, that are the norm. Um, in fact, being Caucasian is um, a minority in our community uh, just because of just the, the diversity and the world have come to, to where we are. Uh, our people are beautiful. Uh, the criminal element that you hear of is probably less than um, 3% of, or even less than, I would say 0 0.05, maybe 0.05% in the community. A lot of people are new immigrants or immigrants, hardworking, they love their children, they love their families, um, they love Canada, and they love you and, and love each other. So um, they're just really good people. But the reality is that this experiment, if you want to call it that, that the city did a few, uh, decades ago in the 60s went wrong. It was a bad experiment. And what they did was they, they um, built too quickly and they put too many people in, in just like this small, um, you know, uh, square mile area and they couldn't handle it. In fact, they, they, the records tell us that at some point in, in 1971, uh, they, the population of Jane and Finch went from 1,300 to 33,000. 1,300 to 33,000 in just about 10 years. <coughs> so you have thousands of people that have moved in, but you don't have infrastructure, you don't have the social resources, you don't have um, the, the uh, I guess, policing, you don't have the schools, you don't have the community resources to just help uh, and manage the load. And so they created chaos. And so uh, poverty, of course, was a result um, of just a lack of resources. Uh, about 22.5%, get this, of all residential dwellings were designated public housing. So 22% of all the residential houses in Jane and Finch are community government Ontario housing, called Toronto Community Housing, that's 22.5%. And so this high concentration of public housing units transformed the area into a high poverty neighborhood. And so uh, this is what we're dealing with in our community. People, it seems, were left to, to fend for themselves. 
And so as a result, you have the high poverty. You, we have a, a, the highest percentage of poverty in, in uh, Toronto. Um, they say about 30% are on the poverty line. We have a lot of people who are unemployed. Um, and then um, just, just of course with uh, education, a lot of our young people graduate high school, but maybe not post-secondary. Um, you have issues uh, like housing, where the housing conditions are deplorable. All these um, government housing, they don't keep up with them. If, you, if you're uh, aware of the news, the uh, Ontario Housing Corporation is um, in, in a bad financial state. They're trying to sell assets, so they're not maintaining these government houses very well. Some of our young people and families, they have mice and rats and snakes that come into, into their homes. Um, and so it's just uh, the housing, the education, the schooling, um, all these things are just uh, dismal. So this is the dark side of our community. And so crime, of course, uh, festers and feeds off this. You have the, our young people falling to uh, gang or criminal activities. Our, our young girls are preyed upon. Uh, some of them are um, goaded to, to go into prostitution at, a, at the age of 13 or 12 or even younger. And so this is our community. This is our problem that we face. And so we need to be aware of this. I remember when I first came into the community, uh, just a youth pastor, I was super, super naive. I uh, was sharing with uh, Tim earlier today, and I was like, um, I, I just wanted to reach kids for the Lord. And now I'm the senior pastor. I like to say lead pastor. Um, but uh, then I was, I was the youth pastor, and I just wanted to see kids saved. And so I ran basketball programs, um, drop-ins, stuff, and kids came, uh, and, and we had lots of great things happening. Um, and I noticed something, though. Every week, the, the, the young people would give their hearts to the Lord. Every single week. But then after months, it was, I realized it was always the same young people. And I said, isn't there any like discipleship happening? Why are they... Don't they know that once you give your heart, you're a Christian? And then it dawned on me that these kids had so much going on in their lives. Uh, as I began to kind of pull back the, the curtain, I realized that some of them had uh, moms who had multiple partners coming in the homes and, and there was you know drugs uh, being sold or um, just the, the deplorable conditions that they were living. And I realized that we had to do more than just preach the gospel and um, I remember it was a funny story where we were playing basketball and one of the kids goes up for a layup and a knife drops uh, from his, I guess, um, belt onto the ground. And I picked it up and I'm like, what is this? And yeah, a lot of the, quite a few of the kids would bring weapons back in those days into the program. And I went on the mic and I said, if you have a weapon, you need to check it in at the door. <laughs> and then we'll, we will give it to you after you leave. So no one really did that. But uh, my eyes began to open to the problems in the area and that it wasn't just enough to uh, speak the gospel. We had to find ways to reach them and to care for them. And so you see, Nehemiah was aware uh, of the problem. And I believe God has called the church you know, thinking about it, what does it mean to be a community church? Um, I believe God has called the church to uh, answer what are the problems in our community. And that's what it means to be a community church and, and uh, begin to respond to that. Jesus was found in the midst of the darkness. 
Jesus was found with the sinners. He came for sinners. Even in Acts, we see that the church was started, uh, and quite early on, there was lots of poverty. The saints had to get offerings from the diaspora because there was such a famine in Jerusalem. Um, and so uh, the church seems, you know, historically has seem, seemingly um, uh, really uh, been in the midst of the poor of the of the poor being in, in the in the margins being uh where the hurting are and i think that's why it says in, in acts 10 38 that god anointed jesus with the holy spirit and power and he went about doing good let's not forget that we love the healing we love the um healing all those who were oppressed of the devil but jesus did a lot of good he fed people he cared for the lonely and the desolate he did good he was a do-gooder Right, we're called to do good in our community. So um, we're talking about knowing that the problem in our community, it's, uh, it's okay, and, and I didn't know the problem in my community for a while, actually. Uh, and, and so, anyway, so, so then Nehemiah, he um, hears about the problem, and then he begins to experience something, which I think it's important before we go into solving the problem. Look at um, chapter 2, verse 1. So it continues the story. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. See how he identifies completely with the city. He says, this is my city. He, this is my, my ancestors. This is where I come from. This is sort of my identity. And so he totally, completely identifies with the city. And I think we have to completely identify with where we're called. And we have to be so immersed to the point that we can go like EJ, my, I mean, you know, like when he says my Toronto, I'm like, really? <laughs> but like he completely identifies with Toronto. So uh, with your, your part of Toronto or your part of wherever, wherever um, you're called, Stainer, we're just talking about that. Josh, right? Yeah. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, so when we identify the problem, we have to feel the pain. It engages our, our passions and it allows it to become our priority. The church is called to heal. The church is called to heal pain. And honestly, I, I don't know if there is something called a community church. I don't like that, that term. I think that all churches should be community churches. Um, now, if for some reason churches have found themselves in the suburbs, I, sorry, or not suburbs per se, but in commercial industrial areas I think they have to do a lot of work to reach their communities and uh, I think they can figure that out but really like I think every church should be a community church a church reaching its community we can't afford to lose our way we're called to engage our na neighbors in the suburbs in the city wherever we are we have to figure it out and so uh, that's why I don't like community church um, I remember we went through this discussion when we had a change of pastors a few years ago when the new pastor came and he, he didn't have a vision for the community um and he's and he's like our church isn't a community church our church is a church 
in a poor community, but it's not a ch community church. It's like, really? Like, our church is the church. Mm -hmm. We need to reach those in our community. And yes, we do have some who drive in, um, but we need to understand we're called to reach our neighbors wherever they are, right? So um, I think there's been some, some of that debate through, uh, through church, uh, church ecclesiology and so forth. But I think ultimately the question is, who is our community? Um, who is our community? Who are we called to reach? We, we are not so much that we're a community church. I think is who is our community, mm -hmm. right? Is it, um, you know, the sort of sporting people? Uh, maybe you're in an athletic community, right? Um, is it maybe the university students? Is it the millennials? Is it the people uh, that physically right beside you and your neighbor? Is it your friends at school? Is it who is, who is your community and who are you going to? focus on who do you have that passion and that pain in your heart for and then we see Nehemiah now um, so we've seen how he's identified the problem and he's uh, felt the pain and then he says I need to go closer Look at verse uh, verse 4 and the king said to me what is it you want then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight let him send me to the city in Judah where my ancestors are buried so that I can rebuild it. And so we have to go to our problems. This, this is about proximity, okay? It's about proximity. I need to be near, I need to be near the heart of the situation. And uh, for Nehemiah, he had to go. He had to leave, I think it was in Persia or Susa, and he had to go and he had to be in Jerusalem. And for Karen, she had to be on commercial drive. And for us, uh, we were called to move in into our community, into Jane and Finch. And so, uh, let me tell you the story. So this is actually our, um, this is Elijah. Um, so he's, yeah, six months-ish? Oh, probably. Maybe a little bit more. A little bit more. So, um, so here, so I kind of set the story up. So basically, we had been, we hadn't heard of anyone who was moving in. Okay, now it's, it's a thing. Okay, like we're talking about in 2005. Okay, there was no one that we, were, we heard of in the payoff then. All we heard was people going globally to missions and that was great. And I guess maybe we were just more ostrich, like an ostrich with our necks in the sand. We were not really talking to anyone even in the denomination about the things that what was going on. Um, and so we didn't know uh, about moving in. Literally, it was God. We are just talking one day, we're like, man, we're always driving into the, you know, we lived in Etobicoke, which isn't actually super far from Jane Finch. It's still Toronto, but we just said, we just said, we have to be where the action is. We have to be right where our church is. And so we were in our early thirties and, and we were praying and, and then we just got this impression. We need to um, move into the community. We owned a bungalow and, um, and selling would mean that we would not be able to actually um, uh, purchase anything because Jen had um, given up her job to stay with the children. So we couldn't qualify. If we, if we give up the house, we couldn't qualify for um, another property. So there are some sacrifices with having to move into the community. And so we're thinking about it. We went to a conference in Camden. We met up with Shane Claiborne. He was at that conference. And he's like, yeah, you guys got to move in. You got to do it. And uh, we read some John Perkins stuff and the CCDA. 
uh, Christian Community Development Association in the States, and, and there's a whole wrapped up movement. I mean, in the States, it's how you want to help a poor community, like, it's a no-brainer. They have, like, a, a process. You need to move in, you need to uh, redistribute, you need to uh, relocate, you need to um, raise up indigenous, like, it's a whole system, right? So they don't make any bones about it. <laughs> like, God, do you want us to move in? And so we finally took the leap of faith. We put up our home for sale in, uh, I believe it was March of um, 2006. And uh, we're like, God, if you're in this, then let it sell. And so um, we, we had about, uh, it was probably February, because we moved in April. So we had about, I don't know, 14 showings in a couple of days and multiple offers over asking so we said i guess god is in this right <laughs> so we um you know sold the house and we moved into rental housing and um and here we are we moved into the community now uh at this time people thought we were crazy like um our our family um uh, they're middle class and, and they're just like what are you guys doing you're moving into uh like a ghetto and in fact, we were so idealistic that we wanted to go into uh, government housing, but they wouldn't let us apply because we didn't, we, we made too much money. Uh, even though we didn't make a lot of money, but we weren't poor enough to live in government housing, but we literally wanted to be the light and be neighbors uh, as proximate. Anyway, so we just moved into private rental housing um, in the community. And so here we are, um, uh, probably in April 2006, Elijah was born in that home. And, um, and so these are some of the early years being in the community with the children. We can go to the pictures there. Um, we put all our kids, um, Nick, this is uh, Abigail and Nicholas. Um, she's probably four and he's six there. And we put them all in one room and um, <laughs> just three. We went from a uh, 2,000 square foot home to a 1,200 square foot rental. And uh, so these are the kids just hanging. Is this actually Jesse yeah. back there? <laughs> um, so I this do you remember that day, right? <laughs> so well, what began to happen was um, uh, actually as we moved in, we found other young people started to move in. Jesse uh, moved into the community. Now, we were young adult pastors at this time, and so we created a whole move-in movement. This is be before moving.to. Um, and, and so, um, actually, we can pause at this one. So we began to, to realize that other young people wanted to move in. So they're like, Pastor Olu's moving to the community. Um, John, uh, Jesse's husband, uh, at that time they weren't married, he moved into the community, um, some other people, the same townhouse block. We, we counted about a dozen people. Goya was here, Goya moved into the community. Um, counted about a dozen different people uh, who maybe shared homes and within about four or five uh, homes collectively were living together and sharing resources. All of them were students, uh, all of them were younger than we were. Um, but through that, we began to create a, a kind of a sense of community that the Lord began to bring and kind of prepare us for, for what um, he was going to do. So this is we're, we're, oh, we're talking about becoming one with the community, I guess, if you want to think of it that way. Um, really um, being proximate, but I think also just becoming one 
where you feel the pain, you feel the hurts, you're, you, you know what's happening in that community because you're part of it. And so, um, so we begin to have an open door policy and we begin to have people over for meals. Um, I, I don't know if we, we have some of that, but actually let's go back to this one. So this is interesting because uh, what, we, what we realized was that uh, because Jen's a teacher, we said, let's homeschool our children. Let's homeschool our children, even though we're now proximate in the community, we're feeling what they're feeling, we're neighbors, but we didn't want our kids to you know, go to the schools that um, the education is not up to par. It's not up to par. That's one of the issues in the inner city because parents, most parents are not taxpayers. Their voices aren't as loud as in the taxpaying community. So the education system just uh, is okay, but they tend to get overlooked in terms of school budgets. They all get the same budget, but parent councils in um, the richer areas are strong and they raise good money and they can bring extra stuff, extra equipment. In our communities, they don't do that. So the children fall by the wayside. And so, um, so Jen was homeschooling the kids for a couple of years, and, uh, but then um, we felt that we, need, we shouldn't hide the lights anymore. And, um, and so for a season we homeschooled, and I think homeschooling is fine. I know Jesse's, they, they're homeschooling their children now, but before this, children were in public school. So for a season, it's fine as the Lord leads you, but for us, the season was over. And so we needed to immerse our children into the public school system because God wanted us to be a voice for some of those parents. And so Jen and I, we kind of rotated in being uh, the chair of the school councils. The school council, we uh, would advocate for the uh, parents and the schools just through natural like meeting, using some of our networks and influences, uh, leading the barbecues, leading the committees, bringing in uh, volunteers to help with school initiatives, and that sort of thing. So it was it wasn't like uh, you know we're ministering. Um, and Karen, you get this. It was just like we're being a good neighbor. Our children are in the school, so we have a vested interest because we're one with this community. And, and so we wanted, we didn't want their education to suffer. Um, and so therefore we were gonna be a voice for, for everybody else as well. A lot of times uh, in the inner city, it's just who is gonna sign up for the job. A lot of times no one wants to sign up for the job because they're doing two, three jobs and they're struggling to uh, put food on the table. And so this is uh, Nicholas and Abigail um, going to school. And Nicholas didn't really want to go to school, actually. He loved being home with mom, because mom would do such a good job with school and field trips and such and such. But Abigail, super social, she was ready to go to school from, from day one. And so we continued to become one as we were close to the family, uh, to, to in the community. And so we had an open door policy. I think we had some meals that we shared, some of the early, early pictures. Um, and we have a, a picture here where we were sharing some meal, meals with some, yeah, so um, we can, yeah, so what, what we would do is we, we would just invite people over all the time, literally all the time. My children don't know, um, um, they don't know reality without um, the church members coming over, without the youth coming over. Uh, Naz, you've been over to my house several times this year, right? Naz is one of our young, our young men. Um, and uh, let's go back to the meal for a second. Just want to 
touch on that. And, and so the meal became signature. Uh, I would, our, our home, uh, our townhouse, um, so I would be sitting here, and this is the uh, kind of sliding door to the backyard. And it's the, it's the, the backyard is um, at the, uh, by the walkway. So as people would walk by, I could see who was walking by. And I remember a story where I'm eating dinner and I see a young man that I've been waiting to connect with. And he had not come to church or what have you, but because I'm, I'm right there by the wayside, I run out, I'm like, hey buddy, come for dinner. I grabbed him and, and so that was sort of a feature of our ministry. I'm barbecuing, barbecuing by the sidewalk and I'm giving people burgers as they go by. Um, <laughs> And literally, the church was across the road. So I mean, for me, it was heaven. Now we, we've moved back, uh, we've recessed a bit further. Instead of being 100 feet from the church, we're two kilometers from the church. I mean, my heart broke when we moved away, but we're still super close. But this, for me, was like heaven, living in rental housing and being so close to the people that we love. And so we became one, literally, with that community. And ministry was so easy. For us um, to do and then um, in becoming one uh, so we we moved closer uh, we put our kids in school we realized that we had to be good neighbors in terms of having this open door policy um, and then and then we we started to take some risks we made some friends in the community and uh, we would even go on vacation with them um, and um, and they they, they didn't have, they had bad credit. So we said, here, um, use our credit card, because they had like a family of five children and we had a family of four children. So use our credit to rent a car. And, and so we, we shared our credit, <laughs> which is probably a bad idea. <laughs> uh, found out that he was actually drinking and driving. <laughs> oh, you didn't know that. <laughs> we, went camp we went camping together and at some point he was drinking. I was like, you're drinking and you're, and, um, but we took some risks. And, and, uh, and we really poured into some families, and particularly this family. And um, at some point, because Jen was staying home, she was able to help, uh, I guess, in a way, parent their children, because this family had some issues. And um, Jen would babysit nine children, right? Well, some of them were my own children. <laughs> yeah, yours and, their, and theirs, and, yeah. and, and um, just, just really loving on them. and, and uh, um, through that, I, I, I know that uh, the, the lady and you decided to start a walking club and uh, because it was easier to get all the children to go and they had fun as they walked. I think Jesse might have joined along and um, some other moms in the community and some seniors came along and um, the, uh, a company came to sponsor because they liked the idea of fitness and the idea of being uh, urban and in the inner city. They had t-shirts that had the company's logo and so a walking club was started just organically, just naturally, by being a good neighbor and by opening up your, your door and, and, and all those sorts of things was going on. So we took some risks in becoming one with the community. And then, and then when you're so present, when you're so local, you get to grieve. And nothing, I, I don't think there's anything greater than, uh, than grieving with people when they're mourning. And so we had an opportunity to grieve with the community this was in 2007 when um, Jordan Manners uh, happened a few years back now, but Jordan Manners was the first uh, child, uh, young person 
uh, in a high school to get killed by gun violence inside the school. So this happened in 2007, never happened in Canada before. And so this made news internationally. We had people calling from England saying we heard that um, this has happened. Um, in, in the US it's different, but never in Canada had it happened. Well, this young man was a kid that I had mentored and he was a kid that um, had taken on retreats. And um, he's a kid that had been in your and Charlene's children's program. And so when he was 15, um, he got caught in the crosshairs of some stuff that was happening in the high school. We still don't know the details to this day because uh, the case eventually was not solved. But, um, and, but he, he, he got killed. And, and so uh, I remember those days of uh, just going, just literally walking over to the government housing where the mom lived and um, just grieving with Dom. I mean, the smell of weed and the, the, the alcohol, because um, the family wasn't saved, um, but um, they needed love and they needed comfort. And I would just hug the mom and just hold her and, and weep and cry and, um, and feel their pain. Um, I remember picking up one of the youngsters who uh, was kind of um, an informant and the police had me watching him. And I didn't know if he was innocent, but because all these kids are connected together, um, police never know who's guilty. So I remember picking him up, and uh, me and John and Trevor, we took him out for dinner. So it was midnight. We just wanted, we know, we know, we know you're feeling down, your friend died. Um, but then on the way back, the police officer, the cruiser, had been following us unknowingly from the young man's home to Montana but we had dinner till when we dropped the, the young man off at uh, his aunt's house because he didn't want to go back to the neighborhood and the police pulled us over and they kind of made up a reason they said I was drunk and I said no I'm not <laughs> drinking like I don't drink and and then eventually um, they said okay you can go and it turned out that they had been following us because we had they were tailing that young man and they, they just wanted to make sure that we were not sketchy people mm -hmm. and they couldn't really tell us that. So all these things, I guess, helped with our cred um, as we continued to grieve with the community. Um, I became, at that point, somehow uh, a community pastor, if you want to call it that, which I'm fine to call it that because the community saw me as their pastor. That's what I mean. Mm -hmm. um, maybe if, if we mean that, then I think that's a good, uh, uh, well, we talk about community church, and I don't like that term, but I like the term community pastor when non-Christians see you as their pastor. And so um, the school had been shut down. Uh, Jeffrey's High School High School had been shut down for, I think, uh, for three days while they did a massive in investigation with the Toronto District School Board and some lawyers and all that. Uh, then they called in. And then, and then um, in the opening assembly that they had, uh, they wanted a chaplain to come and to give a few words of, um, of healing and comfort. And so I was able to share in, in that uh, forum that very important uh, first day back to school. Uh, I remember walking those halls and uh, counseling people. I remember talking with the principal and praying with her and, and she was just distraught. I remember talking with teachers and I, I, I remember God began to open certain doors um, in fact, pivotal doors, because we became one with the community, we helped them to grieve. I'll share one door in, in, in a moment. But the amazing thing was, as we got closer, 
we begin to realize that things look different when you're closer. Sometimes when you're further away, you think you know the problem, but you don't truly know the problem until, and you might bring your own solution, you might bring your own ideas, and we all have our own preconceived notions of how to be a pastor in a community like this, but when we got on the ground and we started to live and we started to immerse our children and we started to be one with the community, we realized uh, from, I guess, a close-up close uh, bird's-eye view, or well, not bird's-eye view, but close-up view, uh, we realized that things were different. This will happen with Nehemiah. I'm going to read the end of the story. When he got closer, look at uh, Nehemiah 2, uh, 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few others. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding. By night, I went up through the valley gate toward the jackal wall, well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down. So he now goes to examine all the gates um, and of the wall and seeing what was wrong. And then verse um, 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. So for me, this is really about um, having a, a team. Uh, Nehemiah couldn't do it himself. And, you know, I had to learn that I couldn't do it myself. You know, I kind of, in my bravado, I'm like, me and my wife and my children, we can do it ourselves, we're going to change this community, and after years of hurts and disappointments, realize that we can't do it, we need a team. And that's why I have this, the people here that, uh, that I just owe so much to. Um, you need the people to be part of it. Uh, one of the things that we did was, and these are some of our people, and it's funny because, it's not funny, but um, all the people that we've shown you, a lot of them are still part of our ministry today, and there's others. Um, as well I think there's another photo and and um, some of those people are in the room today or downstairs or around and uh, this is John Jesse's husband and um, and so most of all these people were part of the journey in some fashion and now they're all either pastors or staff uh, with the church or with inner-city outreach um, which is a nonprofit that the church created um, which I didn't create it the church created it but I relaunched it and I I made it thrive because it was dead in the water and so uh, I breathe life by the grace of God to it so so it, it's kind of right that I created it but I did it so um, and so we we started to disciple that was one of the main features um, that like is a bedrock to our ministry um, I'm not a lead pastor at this point guys I'm still a youth pastor um, youth young adult pastor but I had a team of like 24 amazing leaders who would do anything for me. Um, we would meet every Tuesday night in my home. We would break bread. Um, that table uh, was key. Where I was saying my children have never known a time where like we don't have people over in their homes, in our home. And uh, every Tuesday night we would eat, we would, uh, well, we would pray, I would share, um, they would share, um, discipleship would happen and then we would eat together and they would hang out some more and I mean they were all young adults so they had lots of time right so we did this all together for years right Jesse 
for years and years and years. Like, it was almost like a cult. It was like, every Tuesday night, <laughs> you are in my home, and we're going to do this. And I was so passionate about this. And then they started to run all the ministries. Uh, they started to run all the uh, clubs and all the homework clubs and everything that we did. All these guys, all these volunteers, they were not pastors. None of them was a pastor at that point. They were all doing it because they loved Jesus. Uh, and so discipleship, uh, at, you know, was huge in terms of garnering the people together, uh, and a sense of communalism began to happen. And I didn't want to say communism, communalism. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the word. Uh, so, but a sense of community, uh, and and um, you know, I, I so many anecdotes, and my time is uh, winding down. Um, and then the doors, as the doors opened, God blessed because the people were already there. Um, so what, ha uh, what happened was when I was sharing uh, at the assembly, um, at the Jordan Manor's um, uh, kind of assembly at, at, sco at school, uh, there was a school board trustee who was uh, at the back of the room. He was a Jewish gentleman uh, and um, he heard me speak. And so he came to me after and he said, I, I see that uh, you're doing a lot for, for the youth and for the community. I'd like to meet with you. I'm like, okay. And so um, he, gave me my he gave me my card, his card, vice versa. I didn't think anything of it. A couple weeks later, I, I get a knock on the door and he shows up with a catered lunch uh, at the church office. He and his associate, they brought in a catered lunch into my office. <laughs> and... Uh, so we sat down and he's like, you know what? I want to see you take your programs from just this church. I want to take you, I want to see you go into all my schools. And he had 20 something schools at that point. I'm like, okay, how are we going to do this? This is great. And um, so by faith, I said, yes. Didn't know how, <laughs> you know, leaders, leaders wrapped up and, you know, by faith, by faith we're going to do it. And so we went from being at one site, uh, which was our church site. We ran the program in the uh, church at that time to then going into at, at some point it was four different schools that we're in we stopped at the fourth school um and it was the, the government paid for space and they paid for snacks and they they paid for some of our employees and 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 so in four different schools we brought the program in and we stopped because we wanted we wanted there to be quality uh, but we could have kept going and kept going and kept going uh, but all my leaders and my volunteers and my staff began to ramp up and began to just run these homework clubs. And the, the strategy was simple. You can't preach the gospel in the schools. They won't allow you to. But what you do is you go and do free homework tutoring, and then you can invite them to come to church programs um, as we intentionally organize them. And, 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 and through that, that, that could work. Or just be a mentor, be a tutor, be a light, be a friend. And we've seen the different uh, varieties of that. We've seen some of them come to know Christ. A lot of them haven't come to know Christ, but we've planted seeds and we've, we've uh, been uh, people of light and salt and light. And, and, and um, through the uh, whole um, Jordan Manners uh, sort of um, you know, story, people heard about us um, with John's help as well. Uh, we had interns coming into the community Moving into Jane and Finch, dozens of interns came, lived with us, um, and learned about the community, moved on, got some experience. So we became a mission hub. 
uh, for for um, for people to learn about what God is doing in the margins of Canada. The people have been incredible. Today we have people like Naz. Naz, will you want to come up and join me? Uh, Naz, um, we, when how old were you when you started coming to? Um, yeah, I started being around church when I was six. I think. And you were sure to make it back then, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and Naz is uh, now how old? 18. 18. And um, we have people like Naz now uh, who are around, who are now leading. This summer we had a camp with 50 kids, uh, young people, and we had a staff of about 15 or 20 like Naz who ran the camp completely. And so we're talking about indigenous leadership. I think it's one of the dream of um, any missionary and, and that's one of the reasons why we moved into the community, because we thought we were missionaries and not just pastors, right? Um, we felt like any missionary's dream is that there will be indigenous leadership. And so as we see these young people now, they're running these camps, they're running these programs um, through Jen's leadership. Um, and, and it's incredible because the people are really taking over um, what God is doing, and it's awesome. Let's give him a hand. Thank you so much. And check out the shirt. Uh, what does the shirt say? Making memories, building future, inner city outreach in French Toronto. So, um, so I guess I guess that's pretty much it. Uh, if I were to, are we going to have time for questions? Yeah, we've got five, um, five minutes. Have, what, is that included in the five minutes? Yep. Okay, so, um, yeah, so just if I were to say what, what are some lessons that I've learned very quickly is not everyone will come to know Christ. Talk about being a, a community, being a pastor in your neighborhood, pastor in your neighborhood. You need to just keep sowing seeds of love. Not everyone will come to know Christ. You just need to shake hands, love people, smile. Uh, my wife found out because she smiled at someone, they started, they came to church because you were nice. She didn't share the gospel, she was just nice. They came to church and now they are a bona fide member in our church. Um, not everyone will come to know Christ, but always be sowing seeds. Um, the world is always watching and your reputation is really everything. Actually, we started a, a program, we got a $50,000 grant um, because uh, the police officers came into our church and they saw us playing basketball with the teenagers. Um, and they're like, hey, uh, we know grants that we could apply for you to get to help you run community programming, and we will sign up on it. Six months later, we got this $50,000 grant. You never know who's watching. Just be a light. Um, be people-minded, not problem-minded. As you focus on people, the problems will get solved. And also be clear on your mandate. Uh, this is so huge because uh, people come, people go. In the inner city, in the margins, there's always transition. You're going to put everything in one person, and you know what? They're going to get a home in the suburbs, and they're like, see ya, I don't want to be in the inner city. You love the inner city. I hate it. Um, but, you know, if that derails your entire plan, forget it. Like, just keep, you know what? Keep pouring the people, um, but let your mandate be clear. God will bring, the chips will get rearranged. That's okay. Um, but just stay focused, stay on track. You're called to rebuild that community for Jesus, right? Um, and also, similarly, don't be Western-minded in your approach to time sensitivity and strategy and structure. Again, things are always shifting on the ground. Think of yourself as a general at war, and you're always having to readjust to what the enemy's doing. 
So um, if you're always in boxes and schedules, which I am, and structures, <laughs> and I've, I've had to like be hit so many times over the head, like um, it's not always going to work out. So I have in my structure now a huge unknown box. <laughs> that's how I've been able to work it out. <laughs> like today's going to go this way, except there's an unknown uh, time frame between two and five, and I don't know what's going to happen. And I can always shift that around, and that helps me just handle because people are late and people leave and people all that stuff right and um and that's pretty much it that i have to share with us that was olu jagade from christian center church so how has the pandemic affected low-income households in the jane and finch corridor Olu says that while schools are expecting kids to work online, a large percentage of the kids that they know don't have the requisite technology to do this. The schools are helping, but wheels are turning quite slowly. Some of the companies like Rogers are offering internet for just $10 a month during the pandemic. Also, some of the local schools have been able to give all the families of the students in their school grocery gift cards. Families, of course, have been hit economically with reduced income. In some of these households, the teenagers actually contribute to the household income. They're unable to do this now. Christian Center Church has also been delivering groceries and picking up medication for uh, some of the seniors that they know. So let's remember to pray for Christian Center Church, for Olu and Jennifer and their family, and the team that works with them as they continue to show practical ways of loving their neighbors. You can link to Christian Center Church and Inner City Outreach in our show notes and find out more about them, perhaps even become a supporter. On our next episode, I'm excited to talk to gangland preacher, Dr. Anthony Hutchinson, a leading consultant on Canadian gang culture, a psychologist and Tyndall University professor. I had the opportunity to sit down with Tony and hear his own story of being a teenage gang banger in Vancouver and his own journey to faith and wholeness. I caught up with him shortly, shortly after he was the keynote speaker at the Canadian Multifaith Federation's Community Forum on Guns, Gangs, and Violence, held on-site at Global Kingdom Ministries in Scarborough. You don't want to miss hearing uh, Dr. Anthony Hutchinson. That episode drops on May 1st. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast to keep hearing about God at Work in Canadian urban centers. That's all the time for today's episode. So until next time, keep one ear to God and another ear to the ground in your city. I'm Kevin Rogers, and you've been listening to Sidewalk Skyline Podcast.